Hello and welcome to this Birkbeck Students podcast on EU environmental law. I'm your host, Spike Weston, and I'm here today with Shalom Tehran and Kate Moyce. We'll be attempting to critically engage with the key theoretical position of the EU as a body of and enforcer of environmental law. The key theoretical position I'll be trying to decide on is whether the European Union is an appropriate body to implement and uphold environmental law within its borders. Shalom will be discussing how environmental law has developed as the body of EU law and how it's expanded and how this has presented issues which the EU has had to deal with and what the core environmental principles are and why they are difficult to apply. Kate, meanwhile, will be delving into the case law of what happens in the courts regarding union environmental law, how the court has undertaken a non-interventionist approach and often hasn't taken any action at all, but also how the court enforces some non-EU environmental law. We'll end on a discussion about the EU emissions trading scheme. Okay, so Shalom, over to you. Okay, so in this podcast, I'm arguing two main points regarding why it was particularly difficult to enforce EU environmental law, and they both revolve around the issue of uncertainty. The first point is regarding the early stages of the European Union and the fact that early internal politics made it very difficult to properly enforce any new legislation. My second point is that some of the wording of the legislation regarding environmental law creates uncertainty as well, particularly Article 191 of the TFEU. The wording I will focus on is in Section 2 regarding the definition of the three terms of the level of protection of the environment, the precautionary principle, and the preventative principle. Right. So I will begin with the foundations of, the, of EU environmental law. So the original European Economic Community Treaty, the EEC, contain no express mention of environmental policy. This is because the European states face an immediate objective of economic recovery following the conclusion of World War II. It was only in the 1960s that there was a conscious international awakening around the issues regarding the environment. In the European community, though, there was still very little appetite for activity in the environmental field, as the institutions and members are more focused on defining community legal and political order at this time. As a result... There was little new community legislation until the entry into force of the single European Act, 1987. Okay. Um, and what are sort of the issues uh, around that, around um, what happened before then and what led up to the introduction of that Act? Right. So Jordan actually gives four interlinked reasons why implementation languished in the political doldrums through the 70s and 80s. And they are political symbolism, the extent of European integration, bureaucratic politics, and institutional power relations. Okay. So with regards to political symbolism, in the past, EU environmental policy was commonly appraised on the basis of the amount of legislation rather than its effectiveness at solving environmental problems. Mm-hmm. During his long tenure in the UK Department of Environment, William Waldgrave observed that the sharing of the presidency of the EU among member states on a rotating six-monthly basis created an unhealthy competition to agree as much of legislation as possible. Right. Um, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that's a sort of a suggestion then that the, the EU isn't an appropriate body for an environmental uh, regulation? Well, in the 70s and 80s, I would say no, but things changed a lot for the better since the SCA in 1987, as we'll come to. Right, okay then. So anyways, in the 70s and 80s, the political profile of the environment remained low, and public pressure on the Commission to track the implementation of directives was not that great. No, why not? So, with regards to the extent of European integration, according to McCrory, many of the first laws were adopted when directives were commonly viewed as a commitment of policy intention rather than a genuine legal obligation. In advance of a firm indication from the ECJ that directives were binding in their entirety, a distinctly de minimis view of European law prevailed. The British in particular regarded environmental directives as flexible instruments, the implementation of which could take consideration to finance time and vested interests into account. Right. That's, um, that's interesting because Peter Yeo, 
um, he argues that nowadays the UK is actually one of the better implementers of, of EU directives, but I think we're going to come on to that a bit later on. One more point about this is that according to Pearson, there was a tendency for national politicians to claim the political credit for EU policies without inquiring too closely into the long-term implications, which is not unique to environmental policy. Um, so the third of Jordan's reason is bureaucratic politics. Okay. During the first decade of EU environmental policy, the Commission concentrated upon establishing community competence and enhancing its own bureaucratic position, leaving the economic and technical aspects of implementation to member states. Community-wide compliance cost assessments were rarely, if ever, undertaken. Other directors general of the, of the Commission regarded Director General for Environment, Nuclear Safety, and Civil Protection as weak. And peripheral players. So there's a load of directorate generals, and they regarded that the the directorate general for the environment was a, a weaker position. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and and they didn't scrutinise the, their proposals as carefully as they as they did now. So, are you saying that there was there was a less bureaucratic scrutiny over environmental legislation than there is today? Yes, significantly. The policy process at the European level was institutionally thinner and much more technocratic than it is today. So many of the first directives sailed through the adoption phase relatively unopposed. Okay. So um, Jordan's final reason for why implementation languished is institutional power relations. He said that responsibility for implementing EU law is apportioned by the founding treaties. Article 155 of the TFEU identifies the Commission as a legal guardian of the treaties. Yeah. with responsibility for ensuring their provisions are applied. The Commission may take action under Article 169 of the TFEU against non-compliant states, but the treaties leave open the matter of how cases of non-compliance are to be processed. And how does the, uh, has the Commission responded to that? So the Commission has developed its own informal enforcing procedure. However, yeah. Article 130R of the Single European Act makes it abundantly clear that subject to strictly limited and carefully delineated exceptions, member states are primarily responsible for undertaking the implementation of measures adopted by the Council. Hmm. What, what measures are those? So these are to preserve, protect, and improve the quality of the environment, to contribute towards protecting human health, and to ensure a prudent and rational utilization of natural resources. Okay, so uh, the Commission doesn't actually have the power to implement those measures. No, and this unequal sharing of competences leaves the Commission, which is not directly elected, in a weak and invidious position. It prefers not to stir up trouble with non-compliant states in case it endangers the wider integrationist project or offends the public which elected them. Oh, well, and that's because the state doesn't uh, implement the le legislation properly and the Commission doesn't have a proper mandate to enforce it. Yes, but there are exceptions. Commonly, when a particular state's behavior is plainly egregious, or national groups strongly support enforcement action. All right, but wouldn't the Commission only be enforcing the law that the EU has passed anyway? So, it wouldn't be exercising any political power for for which it would need a mandate, but just enforcing the legal agreements made by all member states of the Union. No, it's only when the Commission senses an opportunity to, to cultivate political spillover by responding to national political demands for fuller, fuller implementation that it directly and openly confronts states. <laughs> Is that a direct quote there? Uh, yeah, that's from Jordan, 1999A. Okay. So by the time environmental law was introduced to the EU, there was already a body of, of principles of EU law? No, there wasn't a large body of principles, but I'll come on to that. So the introduction of environmental law was part of an, ex an expansion of EU law as a whole? Yes, but that was in the Single European Act, but we'll get on to that later. Before that, environmental laws were developed through Article 100 of the EEC Treaty and Article 235 of the EEC Treaty. Article 100 provided for the approximation of national provisions that directly affect the establishment or functioning of the common market, 
the creation of the common market in which there was to be free movement of goods essential to the EU. Yeah. Environmental legislation has developed based on this concept of internal market thinking. Wow, that's a big statement. Do um, any commentators say that? Yeah, this is the opinion of Maria Lee. The mm. point here that she is making is that early environmental law was developed with the expansion of the internal market in mind. Finally, Article 235 of the EEC Treaty provided for whatever action was necessary to attain in the course of the operation of the common market, one of the objectives of the community, if there is an absence of explicit power to do so. Article 235 allows a separate mechanism for achieving a community aim in the event that there was nothing already able to do so. What, what does the article actually say? So what it says is that if there was, no, if there was a specific provision needed in order to ensure the smooth running operation of the market, and there is no explicit provision giving them the power to do so, the community could create legislation in order to ensure the smooth running, as long as it is within the framework of the policies defined by the treaties. Mm. It seems like they use Article 235 as a tool to create environmental legislation. So this Article 235 allowed EU environmental policy to develop, to develop independent of the market, although internal market rationale overall still dominated policy. Right. What do the member states think of that? Well, the expansion of EU environmental action was actually supported by the member states in the Council, the Commission, and the European Parliament. The focus on environmental issues was, was thought to be politically popular, and the framing of the environmental policy as an internal market issue helped market its appeal to states who may have been less sympathetic to the issues. So the implementation environmental EU law wasn't actually based on the need to protect the environment but two different needs being firstly that at the time it was politically uh, popular to be seen to be um, making actions that protected the environment and secondly that uh, framing um, in environmental protection in economic terms to members where environmental protection policies wouldn't have been necessarily popular in a nutshell, yes. Okay. But how does that fit in with the with the core principles? I guess you'll come on to that. It's not a core principle. It's it's more showing the overall attitude of states toward environmental law in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and possibly that it wasn't at the forefront of everyone's thinking. One can argue even today that it still isn't. I see. So going back to talking about early state attitudes towards environmental law, According to Lee, there is also some speculation that those agreeing to early environmental measures may have failed to understand its significance, as there were little short-term costs, and there was mostly long-term and postponed implementation and compliance. And this led some to believe that the legal obligation on their part to implement these policies may not have been clearly understood by all member states. A further factor that may have underscored the, the lack of controversy was that both articles required unanimity in the council, resulting in member states retaining sovereignty. Mm. Um, is that because the principles of EU law are quite strict? Um, the preventative and the precautionary and the polluter pays principle, they they could obviously result in big costs to, to big business. There's, they're definitely not economically favourable principles. That's a good point, but those principles still weren't introduced until Article 131R of the EEC Treaty in, later on in 1987. Yeah, 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 so that's right. So the political consensus was also crucially supported by the CJEU. In Commission versus Italy, the court confirmed that differences in national environment regulation could directly affect the establishment or functioning of the common market due to distorted competition. Mm -hmm. Thus, they upheld Article 100. The courts also upheld Article 235 as a legal basis for environmental legislation in the landmark ADBHU case in 1985, ruling that environmental protection was one of the community's essential objectives, justifying certain limits on the principle of freedom of trade. Right. Following this, the Single European Act provided the legal base for environmental legislation. Article 130R expressly sets out the new policy, namely to preserve, protect, and improve the quality of the environment, to contribute towards protecting human health, and to ensure a prudent and rational utilization of natural resources. Yeah. Hoping to speed up the, the completion of the internal market, 
changes were also made to Article 95 of the TEC, namely, that measures which have as their object the establishment and function of the internal market could be enacted on the basis of qualified majority voting in council in cooperation with the European Parliament. This change was upheld in Commission v. Council 1991, allowing Article 95 to be used for environmental lawmaking. Well, there seems to be a lot of cases around principles of EU environmental law in the 1980s and early 1990s. I guess that's because the principles were still very much um, developing around that time and there was quite a lot of popular will to set out some some principles and some kind of direction. Yes, you're exactly right. Subsequent treaty updates in the Treaty of Maastricht in 1992 and small updates in Nice, Amsterdam and finally Lisbon in 2009 established two main treaties. The Treaty on the European Union, which sets out general principles and institutional arrangements, and the TFEU. That's the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union. Correct. So Article 191 Section 2 of the Treaty of the Function of the European Union specified several important environmental principles highlighted below. European Union policy on the environment shall aim at high level of protection, taking into account the diversity of situations in the various regions of the Union. It shall be based on the precautionary principle and on the principles that preventative action should be taken, that environmental damage should as a priority be rectified at the source, and that the polluter should pay. Right. What, um, sorry, what's the legal definition of high level of protection um, for the purposes of this Act? Is there a definition within the Act? No, it is not defined exactly in the Act. So should the term be understood then on a case-by-case -case basis, or is there, a, is there a case law to serve as an interpretive aid to that? Well, yeah, it must be understood on a case-by-case -case basis. And that is one of my fundamental points. The fact that it is open to interpretation means that it can only be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. Only on a case-by-case -case basis. So, one of the most notable things about the high level of protection is that the concept is repeated time and again. For example, in Article 114 of the TFEU, as well as in Article 3 of the, of the Treaty of the European Union. The language is not, however, very specific and is open to interpretation. For example, in Gianni Bittati versus Safety High Tech, there was a challenge to the level of protection in the regulation of substances that depleted the ozone layer. The court ruled that a high level of protection does not necessarily mean the highest level of protection. Defining a high level of protection is a political task and as such leaves those that are tasked with decision-making powers with a substantial amount of discretion when it comes to the interpretation of high levels of protection. But why is it political? Is it because it was never defined le legally in Article 191? Surely science should play a key role in this. I guess um, politics comes into play because the level of environmental protection is, is subject to the economic value, right? That is possibly one factor, but according to Maria Lee, the political part of this is, is looking at the scientific research and then having lawmaking bodies determine acceptable levels of risk. So, what about the um, precautionary principle then? So, according to Tosin, the key document for understanding the EU's approach to the precautionary principle is the communication on the precautionary principle, which states that the principle is relevant only in the event of a potential risk, even if this risk cannot fully be demonstrated or quantified or its effects determined because of the insufficiency or inconclusive nature of the scientific data. Right. The document defines that precautionary measures shall be proportional to the chosen level of protection, be non-discriminatory, be consistent with comparable measures already in place, be based on a cost-benefit analysis of action and non-action, be subject to review when new scientific data becomes available, and finally, facilitate the production of the scientific evidence necessary for a more comprehensive risk assessment. Okay, um, that's interesting, but... How is proportional actually defined? And, and if it's not defined, who, who decides what is proportionate? Right, so according to Lee, proportionality in EU law requires that a measure be both suitable and necessary. It must be effective at achieving its end, but there should not be a less burdensome measure that could have achieved the same end. Okay, I see. It seems to be a, um, a sort of cost-benefit analysis subject to economics, but yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so back to the explanation about the precautionary principle. Lee acknowledges that there are scientific uncertainties at the center of environmental policies. In some instances, the precautionary principle allows protective action to be taken in the absence of scientific certainty that harm will otherwise result. Lee acknowledges this weak approach as she believes that in the absence of this principle, environmental measures would have been able to be justified if the need arose. The other extreme, if a strong approach to the precautionary principle was taken, it would be impossible to implement across the board. This is because such an approach would require precautionary regulatory action to be taken if there would be any doubt about safety, and this would have to be proven by the proponent of any activity or technology. Right. So what's, so what's the role of science um, in this highly scientific area of law? Well, science plays a role providing evidence for any risk assessment, which, together with cost-benefit analysis, yeah. are the two techniques used in environmental decision-making. For example, in GMOs or product regulation. Well, Sunstein criticizes the precautionary principle as paralyzing because it only provides answers, be it right or wrong, because we fail to notice the risks associated with not taking the risks on which we focus. On which we focus. What does he mean exactly by that? means that we may decide not to take a risk because it may be too dangerous, but by not taking that risk, we ignore a potentially worse risk. Sunstein gives an example of this. For instance, banning asbestos may cause a manufacturer to produce a product which is even less safe, or increasing the regulation of nuclear power may end up increasing the use of coal-powered plants, which is even more harmful. Yeah. So Lee argues, therefore, that the precautionary principle cannot provide easy answers to difficult questions. The only way to apply the precautionary principle is through the courts demanding some scientific plausibility and prohibiting disproportionate measures. So where have the courts ever demanded scientific plausibility and, and prohibited any disproportionate measures? Yeah, so the two key cases around this were Pfizer Animal Health and Alpharma, which are two cases decided on the same day that both dealt with the case of adding antibiotics into animal feed as a growth stimulant. This increased the speed of growth so that the animal can be slaughtered faster, therefore reducing the cost of the feed. The problem is that after prolonged exposure to the antibiotics, the animal can develop resistance, which makes treating disease in the future less effective, which of course is a problem. Council was worried that the use of antibiotics in animals would lead to resistance in humans, mm. and so removed authorization from the antibiotics manufactured by the applicants. Because it was agreed that the seriousness of the risk, and in particular the link between antibiotics and agriculture and in humans, the precautionary principle was applied. Right. This is where the parties disagreed, which is why it went to court. Mm -hmm. So we see here that this unclear, open-ended wording in Article 191 of the TFU causes there to be... So many factors... Yeah, so there's, there's just so many factors that have to be taken into account, which is what creates all this confusing uh, case law. Okay, um, and then uh, did the court, in their direction of the interpretation of that, set out any principles that can be applied in future cases? Not really, because regulation cannot be based on a hypothetical conjecture that is not scientifically verified. But some, princi some principles that they did establish were that there must be a scientific risk assessment or any preventative measures are taken, and that a failure to establish positive proof of absolute safety does not justify protective measures. Mm. The precautionary principle in Pfizer prioritizes public objectives over economic considerations. Right, okay. The final point that I would like to make is regarding the preventative principle, which is based on the notion that it is cheaper and more effective to avoid pollution in the first place than to clean up after it. So that would be an instance of where an economic danger of pollution supports a stronger environmental protection to create a, uh, sorry, to prevent a greater cost later on. Exactly right, but also to prevent the pollution itself, which would damage the environment, and of course the time it would take for the environment to recover. Right. So according to Kingston, this prevention principle is the underlying philosophy of EU environmental laws, such as the Industrial Emissions Directive, Environmental Liability Directive and the Waste Directive. Yeah. So, so according to Kingston, this prevention principle is the underlying philosophy of EU environmental laws, such as the Industrial Emissions Directive, the Environmental Liability Directive, and the Waste Directive. 
According to Kingston, the prevention principle and the precautionary principle are both viewed as having the same objective, namely, eliminating and preventing environmental harm or damage. Mm -hmm. Kramer notes that there are some who argue that the prevention and precautionary principles may be used interchangeably, while some disagree and say that the prevention principle is different, as it only applies when risk is quantifiable and known, mm -hmm. therefore creating certainty that damage will occur. Once again, the lack of clear meaning and understanding between the two principles result in difficulties in legal translation in the courts. Kingston brings two examples of this from National Farmers Union and UK v. Commission, where the English version of the judgment refers to the prevention principle, and the other language versions use a wording which translates as the precautionary principle. Right. However, overall, the vast majority of jurisprudence when it comes to these issues revolve around the precautionary principle. But that aside, once again, you can see the lack of clarity in the language of the treaties causes confusion. That even the translation of the judgment from the same case um, in two different languages are different. Yeah, and no, I can I, I can see you raise a really interesting point that it's hard to set a sort of kind of a, a case law a interpretive aid because the science just isn't available yet. Um, so that's really, really interesting points that you make there. And I want to ask you a lot more questions, but I'm really conscious about the scope of, of, what, you're, of what you're talking about. So I'll sort of limit those. Um, can you give us then just a quick sort of conclusion then of, of what you what you take from, from that? Yeah, well, just as a short recap, um, the early stages of the European Union, internal politics made it very difficult to properly enforce any new legislation. Um, and regards to my second point, which is, um, some of the wording of legislation regarding environmental law is just, it creates uncertainty, um, specifically Article 191, Section 2 of the Treaty of the Function of the, of the EU. Mm. So now we're going to hear from Kate, who's going to be talking about the, the case law of environmental law in the EU courts, and also in the domestic courts, but the EU legislation. Um, she's going to be looking at one particular area of law, which is going to be air pollution law. So, Kate, over to you. Thanks, Spike. So, what I will be evaluating is the sufficiency of the EU's implementation of air quality standards, and um, looking at case law specifically. I'll be discussing the non-interventionist approach of the ECJ, and even when the court has found a breach, nothing has been done. I will look at the UK National Court's interpretation of EU environmental law and the lack of implementation. And thereafter, I'll be looking at the EU carbon trading scheme as an incentive for reducing air pollution and economical concerns over a failure to implement legislation. Okay. Okay, so just a brief overview. There is no specific EU court that is assigned to deal with breaches of environmental law by a member state. Mm. Environmental cases are tried by the EU General Court and the EU Court of Justice which is a division decided by the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, um, and that's Article 256. The General Court in particular decides upon applications from individual persons, and that is regulated by Article 263, Section 4 of the TFEU. Yeah. However, the majority of cases are dealt with by the ECJ, which is where all of the cases I'm about to discuss have been heard. Okay. So, um, the EU courts have stated continuously that the discretion lies with the EU Commission in regard to issuing proceedings against a member state for a breach of environmental law, and that's under Article 258 of the TFEU. So, while two, Article 258 does not explicitly give particular discretion to the Commission, the Commission is generally regarded as the guardian of the treaty. Yeah. However, despite this, the court has indicated that there is no obligation for the Commission to bring action against a member state for non-compliance with environmental legislation. And that was indicated in the case of the Commission and the um, United Kingdom and the Commission against Denmark. That's right, yeah. And also, Cranmer argues that the courts have created an area where public power is exercised without being controlled by the judiciary. And he says that this is a regrettable factor. Um, and... Um do you agree with, with, with Kramer? Yes, I agree with Kramer, just on the basis that the courts do not exercise their obligation to implement the law. And the court's role really is to protect and uphold the law. And the cases I'm about to discuss highlight this. Okay. Okay, so the EU Commission only has the power to take a member state's central government to court 
and not private companies. This means that a breach of air quality may have been made by the private sector and that presents a further complication. So this concept is best exemplified in the Stitcherton case, where this case was referred to by the Dutch courts to the EU and concerned an environmental interest group that, who argued that permits granted for three new power stations by the Dutch government would lead to the breach of national emission ceilings, which was set out in EU legislation for nitrogen oxides and sulphur dioxide. So interestingly, Maria Lee highlights that the EU Court of Justice missed an opportunity in stitching to embed and broader environmental standards in the permitting process of the power stations. So she makes a very interesting point that the ECJ rejected any obligation to take account of the national emission ceilings. I think the argument in that case is that the three new power stations would bring the country over the emission ceiling, but the court said that it's up to the member state to limit the emissions, not the court. So they wouldn't say that the Dutch minister was acting incompatibly with, with EU law by granting permission for the building of these, for these power stations. Exactly. The court found that it was up to the member state to limit the emissions and not the ECJ. So the court wouldn't find that the Dutch minister had acted in confliction with EU law in granting the permission to build the power stations. So this case highlights a vast inconsistency with the courts, as the construction of the new power stations would have certainly brought Holland over the emission ceiling, and that's potentially breaching EU legislation. Would you, would you mean um, potentially breaching? Well, the case didn't actually involve a breach of the emission ceiling. It was just argued that it would be an inevitable consequence of granting permission for the power stations. The court simply decided to take a more passive approach by deciding against intervening in national affairs, leaving the member state the freedom to regulate its own emissions. So therefore, I would agree with Maria Lee that this really was an opportunity for the CJEU to take a more active role in setting out environmental standards across the EU, whether it be by enforcing a stricter regime of granting permission for new power plants or by adhering closer to the preventive principle and demanding evidence that the emissions wouldn't be breached, which the court really decided not to take. Mm. Um, this would seem to be slightly inconsistent with the environmental principles, which is why I'd be critical of this decision. However, it is consistent with the EU's record of environmental protection which is subject to economic growth, which is a key subject of debate throughout EU environmental law. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. So could we then conclude that the, the CJEU will only intervene when there has been a, a black and white breach of, of EU law? Well, they might find in favour of the Commission, but they may not necessarily intervene or take any affirmative action so, for example, in the European Commission versus Italian Republic case, the Commission requested the court to declare that, by having failed to ensure for a number of consecutive years that in numerous zones in Italian territory, concentrations of PM10 in ambient air do not exceed the limit values. Right. However, despite the ECJ making the declaration that Italy was in breach of air quality standards, for the years 2006 and 2007, the court ordered both Italy and the Commission to bear their own costs for the proceedings, and no further action was taken. Okay. So this case highlights both the passiveness of the EU courts concerning breaches of air quality and a lack of implementation of the directive by a member state. However, the Italian Republic argued that to comply with the limit values of pollution in the time limit set by Directive no 1999-30 would have involved the adoption of drastic economic and social measures and the infringement of fun fundamental rights and freedoms as yeah. well. So that is such as the free movement of goods yeah. and persons, private economic, economic initiative mm. and the right of citizens to public utility services. Yeah. But it should be noted that unless a directive has been amended by the European Union legislature for the purposes of extending the time limits prescribed for implementation, the member states are required to comply with the time limits originally laid down. So, you know, notably, the Italian Republic did not claim to have requested the application of Article 5, Section 4 of Directive 1999-30, 
which concerns the situation where the limit values in ambient air ex are exceeded um, due to natural um, events that result in con concentrations significantly in excess of normal levels from natural sources. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't apply for that. Um, so, nevertheless, no action was pursued against the Italian Republic for the breaches of the directive, leaving no consequence for the dangerous pollution levels. So, the Court of Justice found in favour of the Commission against Italy that there had been a breach of the EU law, and yet they still, they still took no action in the, in the result of that case. Yeah, that's right. And the Commission had to pay their own legal costs as well. They had to pay their own legal costs. That's that can't be consistent with the principles, but the, with the principles in um, uh, Article One Nine One, Subsection Two of the TFEU. Well, yeah, this case presents an inconsistency with the polluter pays principle within the core environmental principles laid out in One Nine One Two of the TFEU, and that's firstly because the Commission had to bear their own costs. And secondly, no other economic action was taken for the damage caused by the elevated pollution levels. The polluter pays principle asserts that those who produce pollution should bear the environmental and social costs of their actions. Right. Secondly, you could argue that this wasn't entirely consistent with the preventative principle because no action was made to prevent a further breach of pollution levels. Mm -hmm. And no orders were made to rectify the levels by the court, mm. even in the form of non-binding recommendations. Exactly. Also, this approach is present in the European Commission versus Portuguese Republic case. Yeah. So this case further shows a lack of consequence for breaching air quality standards. Much like the Italian case, a decla declaration for a breach of obligations was made by the ECJ and no further action was taken. This clearly follows in the same pattern as the Italian Republic case, although Portugal was ordered to pay the costs of the court proceedings, mm. which is interesting as there doesn't seem to be any substantial difference to justify why both parties paid their own costs in the Italian case and why Portugal bore all the costs in their case. Okay. EU environmental law is meaningless about adequate enforcement and while EU law expands, Governments and policy are left lacking. Taking this into account, it could be argued that adequate enforcement could be achieved in a separate environmental court. Lawyers and NGOs have raised a few concerns when questioned about the need for separation of environmental courts. That's really interesting. Can you tell us about those concerns? The first one was that there is often a lack of expertise in environmental issues within the ranks of the judiciary. And second one is problems with the rules of locus standi and problems of demonstrating a direct interest in issues. And the third one was several respondents actually identified a need for a specialist environmental court or tribunal. And the fourth one was that judges have actually said that environmental cases presented difficulties both in the nature of the cases and the way which cases are presented to the court. So in a positive aspect, in 2018, the European Commission produced a report which was called A Europe That Protects, Clean Air for All. And in this report, the Commission outlines measures available to help member states fight air pollution. But these measures aren't legally binding. No, the measures aren't, but they demonstrate some progress concerning policy and may influence the court in terms of facilitating an action or order in the event of a breach. For example, the court could consider which measures the member state took or didn't take and potentially get into more detail about why the, why the state was in breach of European law. Um, what, does the, what does the report consist of then? So the report consists of air quality standards, national emission reduction targets and emission standards for key sources of pollution. The Commission vowed to strengthen its work with national and regional and local authorities on a common, integrated approach. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it is. And what's more interesting is that after the publication of this report, the Commission referred France, Germany and the UK to the Court of Justice of the EU for their failure to respect limit values for nitrogen dioxide and for failing to take appropriate measures to keep limit periods as short as possible. 
Hungary, Italy and Romania were also referred to the Court of Justice over dangerously high levels of particulate matter in PM10. Yeah. So these cases against the member states are currently still in litigation and it remains to be seen how seriously the ECJ will deal with these infringements. The Commission now appears to be taking an active role in issuing these proceedings, which is positive. However, now the ECJ has an opportunity to break away from previous patterns of passiveness, and it will be interesting to see whether they actually do. Do you think they will? Hmm, it remains to be seen. Also, I wonder whether the case will be heard by judiciary who have any background in or an understanding of the science of Science in environmental law. Yes. Yeah, this is quite a scientific um, topic, is it? So, about um, the the standing then. What's the what's how how do the cases get to the courts then? So, the Industrial Emissions Directive 2010 provides that the public concerned, explicitly including NGOs, must be given early opportunities to participate in committing procedures, although this decision really is entirely up to the member states. It should be noted that no NGO or individual has automatic standing in the EU courts in environmental matters. The concept of locus standi is addressed in Article 263 of the TFEU and Kramer agrees that the courts adopt an extremely restrictive approach of this. Kramer highlights that this restriction only bars access when an individual or an NGO is directly and individually affected by an EU measure. This is because there's a general consensus that the protection of the environment is a general and non-individual interest. Isn't there a, uh, an international law treaty that comes in on top of the EU law? Then? Yes, there is. There's a key public international law treaty on the protection of the environment which EU member states are a signatory to, but it isn't part of EU law. The Aarhus Convention, 1998, Article 9, Section 3, states that members of the public have access to administrative or judicial procedures to challenge acts and omissions by private persons and public authorities which contravene provisions of its national law relating to the environment. Mm. This effectively removes the need for a private party to demonstrate that they meet the requirements for standing, either in domestic or treaty law, to bring an environmental case to court. In addition to the 263 article of the TFEU, the Aarhus Convention grants the public rights regarding access to information, public participation and access to justice in governmental decision-making processes on matters concerning the local, national and transboundary environment. It focuses on interactions between the public and the public authorities. So what are the, what are the obligations of the government then uh, on, the, on the Aarhus Convention other than giving standing? The Aarhus Convention obliges governments to give rights and remove financial constraints for NGOs and individuals to issue environmental proceedings. Those who are addressed in the Convention are public authorities, governments, international institutions and privatised bodies that have public responsibilities. However, Kramer makes an interesting remark that although the EU ratified the Aarhus Convention, the EU courts did not change their position and refuses to assume the same obligation for themselves. So this could be argued as creating a contradiction of the Convention. Interestingly, in the Slovak Republic case, the court found that the EU, in its declaration of competence at the signing of the Arms Convention, stated that member states are responsible for the performance of obligations according to Article 9, Section 3, yeah. and they will remain so until the community adopts provisions of community law covering the implementation of those obligations. So the European Court, in a way, adopted the Aarhus Convention as part of union what effect did this have on the application of union law in the domestic courts? The Crown, on the application of Climate Earth, was a successful case which lobbied the UK government to accept the Aarhus Convention in 2009. An important thing to remember is that the convention was actually created in 1998. So that's the same year of the Slovak case? Yes. And that's interesting because 
the international law is only applied in the domestic courts, uh, at least in the UK, 11 years after the UK signed the treaty and the same year that the CJU said it should be adhered to. And that's just to me that the EU, which has its established institutions and integrated legal systems, is a far more appropriate body to protect the environment than other possible alternatives. That's a fair point. And the UK domestic cases brought by Client Earth are demonstrative of the UK's ongoing failure to comply with EU Directive 2008-50, which is the Ambient Air Quality Directive, and to take crucial action in reducing unlawful levels of nitrogen dioxide. And one UK domestic case in particular was the Crown on the application of Client Earth, number three, against the Secretary of State for Environment, focused on the UK government's third attempt at a lawful plan for nitrogen dioxide emissions, which was made public in July 2017. The court held that the 2017 plan was deficient and unlawful, as it did not contain remedial measures sufficient to ensure substantive compliance with the Ambient Air Quality Directive or the necessary information required by the directive. The court considered the appropriate remedies to follow from an un earlier finding of unlawfulness in relation to the third attempt at a plan. Right, so there have been cases where the courts have in intervened on, on the policies. That's really interesting. Yes, it is. And in the course of his judgment, Justice Garnham highlighted the following issues in his comments. That there was continuing failure by the government to meet its obligations to reduce air pollution and that the EU directive should have been complied with. And also, the 2017 air quality plan was the third unsuccessful attempt that the government has made at devising a plan which complies with the directive and the domestic regulations. Right. Justice Garnham also stated that he did not doubt the government's good faith, but the history, history of this litigation demonstrates that good faith hard work and sincere promises are not enough. Garnham says that it seems the court must keep the pressure on the government to ensure the compliance with the regulations and the directive is actually achieved. So taking this into account, Garnham's judgment indicates that the national courts within member states are obliged to pressure their governments to ensure that the Ambient Air Quality Directive 2008 is complied with. This concept is also highlighted by Maria Lee, who argue that, argues that the most important role of member states in EU environmental law lies in their obligation to implement directives domestically. So what do you make of the EU's ability to implement and uphold environmental law? In the UK, at least as we've discussed, there is a substantial platform for the upholding of EU environmental law. And so in that sense, the EU is an appropriate body to protect the environment. Right. Moreover, Thornton QC suggests that it's unclear how breaches of environmental law by the government after the UK leaves the EU will be enforced. Thornton QC highlights the importance of the European Commission and the European Courts, stating that they have played an important role in law enforcement and environmental protection. Therefore, in the absence of the ECJ and the Commission, enforcement in the UK looks likely to, to be dependent on NGOs such as Client Earth. The ECJ is the highest level of court to interpret legislation, and therefore it will be solely up to the UK Supreme Court. However, the Office for the Environmental Protection, the OEP, will be an independent statutory body to safeguard environmental standards and will have the power to take the government to court to enforce environmental law in this circumstance. However, it remains to be seen whether the OEP structure will replicate the EU's environmental protections. So Justine Thornton, a British Environmental Law QC and High Court judge, is saying that if Britain were to remove itself from the jurisdiction of the European Union law and the CJEU, then the environment in Britain would end up having less protection. So in that sense, the EU seems to be an appropriate body to protect the environment. I've got to ask you for your take on the EU emissions trading scheme. Uh, I'll just give a quick summary of how it works and what some people say about it for the benefit of our listeners. The EU emissions trading scheme was created in 2005 
uh, and it was inspired by the success of a similar US scheme to combat acid rain, which is the acid rain program. Um, and though that program achieved a 30% reduction, whereas the, the EU emissions trading scheme is only aimed at a 5% reduction. Now, it operates in three ways. A member state can either trade emissions from other countries through the scheme, it can buy credits from greenhouse gas reduction targets, or it can fund carbon reduction projects in emerging countries, i.e. non-EU countries, to offset their emissions. Now, supporters of the idea say that this is the most cost-effective way to incentivize the market to channel resources towards low-carbon energy and carbon reduction projects as efficiently as possible. Now, critics say that in practice, it doesn't actually lower em emissions, as companies tend to opt for offsetting emissions in ways that are not always entirely credible. It also does little to improve air quality within the EU, as it covers only industrial emissions, which are 45% of the total EU emissions, and most offsetting projects are, for financial reasons, beyond the EU borders in developing countries. Uh, and these projects are cheaper than the more costly alternative of minimising the reliance on fossil fuels, which is obviously what emissions is really all about. Furthermore, the emissions caps are based on previous emissions and are, with the single exception, which Peter Yeo notes, of the UK, as I've alluded to uh, earlier in this podcast, previous caps are nowhere near stringent enough to have a proper effect. Now, the EU Commission recognises this, and it is taking steps um, to mandate member states to be more stringent. And a good thing uh, that Peter Yeo believes about it is that the mobilisation of markets around carbon has led to a better emissions budgets and it's also introduced a new range of businesses created in response to minimising emissions. PTO's conclusion is that while the EU emissions and the NGOs uh, differ on their approaches to tackling emissions, they are in agreement that the EU emissions trading scheme has had a positive effect overall. The main problems with the scheme in Yo's opinion, are less the principle and more the ambition that the caps should be lower and possibly even the price of carbon and methane should be higher. So what do you think, Kate? Yes, so a positive aspect of the emissions trading scheme is that those who do not purchase the additional spare permits are fined at a stipulated rate for every excess tonne of carbon dioxide discharged. This obviously gives a consequence to those who overpollute, plus it provides an additional incentive for companies to keep under their allowances. Mm. So, the scheme is subject to criticism as well. For instance, over-allocations of permits, windfall profits, price volatility, and in general for failing to meet its goals. But also, it should be noted that most of these criticisms have been made in respect of phase one of the scheme, which was in 2005 and ended in 2007. It should be noted that phase one was an introductory phase, and it had the intent to establish baselines and create the infrastructure for a carbon market, and not to achieve some different significant reductions. So... Tito and Sandberg have argued that it's largely the uncertainty behind the EU scheme that has resulted in such a tepid and informal response by regulated organisations. Peter Goh argues that the emissions trading scheme, when implemented in accordance with its designs and intentions, can contribute significantly to carbon emissions reduction, provided that the principles behind the idea are not hijacked by short-term financial goals or other conflicting political considerations. So its overall effectiveness is then therefore in the hands of all market participants who have to be willing to commit to its principles with sincerity and integrity and not be blinded by excessive profit considerations. Additionally, there is the economic downside to the court's failure to implement environmental law. So costs of failing to implement EU environmental law has been estimated to cost the economy around 55 billion euros. That's the EU economy as a whole. 
Yes, that's the EU economy as a whole, around 55 billion euros in 2018 alone. So these costs are estimated to come from healthy damage to the environment. The EU's Environmental Implementation Report acknowledges that there are difficulties quantifying precise costs in associated with the implementation gap. So its calculations are only an estimate. But it re reaches a stark conclusion highlighting the significant economic impacts that result from the failure to deliver the cleaner air and water and improved environmental performance that member states have promised. So this estimated 5 billion, 55 billion cost lies in the middle of a broad range of possible totals running from 29 billion to 79 billion. So this report identifies a range of negative outcomes responsible for this economic impact, including damage to public health, reduced biodiversity and unrealised market opportunities. Well, the interesting for me, uh, thing for me is that you know, we're talking about the EU as a body to protect environmental laws within its borders, but in the, in the, this, the effect seems to be of this emissions trading scheme is that a lot of time companies are investing in over overseas uh, offsetting schemes, so outside of the EU, and as opposed to reducing emissions within the EU. So that doesn't really seem to be improving the air quality within with, within its borders. So just to conclude then, um, in answer to our sort of discussion question, whether the EU is an appropriate body to implement and uphold environmental law within its borders. What's your what's your conclusion on that? Well, I think that yes, it is able to implement the law, but it should be subject to some changes because the concept of environmental law is largely scientific and without specialist judiciary and courts, it is likely that the issues I've highlighted will continue. So, you know, the courts have indicated that autonomy is largely up to the member state concerning implementation of environmental standards. However, pending the outcome of the recent referrals to the ECJ by the Commission, it remains to be seen whether the same level of non-intervention will be adopted by the court as it happened in the previous cases. Lastly, the EU emissions trading scheme overall appears to be a positive incentive created by the EU. Peter Yeo points out the issues with the emissions trading scheme are not about the mechanism of using it as a tool for environmental protection. They are dependent on the ambitions of the member states. In other words, what their emissions cap is, and also how they achieve that cap, whether they do so by investing in offsetting beyond the EU or in reducing emissions within. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the explanations and analysis put forward by our superb panellists and have had good insight into the principles of EU environmental law and how it operates at both domestic and European level, as well as in its policies such as the Industrial Emissions Trading Scheme. In light of what we've heard from Shalom and Kate, the European Union does seem to me at least an appropriate body to implement and uphold environmental law, despite the issues that have been highlighted. The current principles have been gradually developed amongst the, the expansion of a range of laws over a number of decades and are integrated as part of a wider supranational legal system. As we've seen, a key article of one of the main public international law treaties on the environment, the Aarhus Convention, wasn't enforced in UK domestic law until the European Court stated it must be. The responsibility to stick closely to the key principles of environmental law those in Article 191 of the TFEU, belongs with a member state. And one could argue that the union law could be more interventionist in holding member states to this. But union law and science can only take us so far. The interpretation of the laws contains a political question for which the Commission and the courts have no legitimacy, and that belongs with a member state. The fact that an environmental judge is concerned that environmental law would be weaker if a country were to remove itself from the jurisdiction of the European Court, reinforces my conclusion that the European Union is an appropriate body to implement and uphold this law.
And finally, the emissions trading scheme. This is potentially the main area where improvement is needed. Because while it's important to invest in sustainable programmes overseas, EU air pollution law is intended at improving air quality within its borders. And it seems to me to have had limited success in that so far. Nevertheless, NGOs are in agreement with the Commission that the scheme has had a positive impact on global emissions and air quality globally, for which the Union law can claim some credit. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you found it interesting and have learnt something new. Bye now.